Hello, everybody. I'm joined today by the boys, Sam Godsey and Tanner Dislett. I'm your host, Keegan Turnbow. To everyone out there listening, thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to break down some winners and losers, talk about some games from the past weekend, and go back to the diamond with Dislett. Let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Crunch Time. We're going to open up with talking some winners and losers. We're going to start with the winners, and we're going to throw it over to Tanner. I'll tell you, my winner from this weekend was the Cincinnati Bearcats. Now, look, the conversation going into the college football season pretty much every year is, what is it going to take for a non-Power 5 team to make the playoff? And in that conversation this year, there were two names that were talked about, and that was it. And that was Cincinnati and Notre Dame being the two best non-Power 5 schools. Sure enough, they match up against each other. Cincinnati already scheduled at Indiana, which, of course, in this offseason looked like it was going to be a tough game. Indiana has struggled, so might not be as quality as a win as you might think. But this one was a big one. Going to Notre Dame and coming out with a win, that is a critical victory for a non-Power 5 team trying to bump up their resume. You're 2-0 in that at Indiana and at Notre Dame slate, won by 14-11, and 11, double digits both times. Big signature win for, for a case to make the playoffs. So I got Cincinnati as my winner. It's good for college football that we have an opportunity for a group of five school that's not Notre Dame. That's not this big name historical program like Cincinnati. UCF unfortunately wasn't able to get there despite naming themselves national champions a few years ago. But it's good for college football that Cincinnati is going to be close. Sam, what was your winner from the past week? My uh, winner from the past weekend was Mac Jones, quarterback of the New England Patriots. Now you might be asking, Sam, didn't they lose? Unfortunately, yes, they did. But damn, did he have a game? He went 31 for 40 on pass attempts, 275 yards, two touchdowns and one interception. Now, in comparison to Tom Brady, who he was facing, He went 22 for 43 and only 269 yards. Unfortunately, the Patriots did lose, but the new era of Mac Jones has arrived in New England, and it looks pretty bright from here. That it does. We're not done talking about the Patriots and the Buccaneers. Stay tuned to hear our thoughts on it further. My winners for the past week, I have a winner and an honorable mention. The winner being the NBA. If you're paying attention to Twitter, you might have seen a clip passing around last night about Steph Curry in in the Warriors preseason game. Steph Curry was dribbling the ball, stepped back behind the three-point line, pump faked. The defender jumped straight up in the air, not coming towards Curry, but straight up in the air. And where Curry jumped into the defender to draw contact and just fired up a shot. The referees did not call a foul. The NBA is a big winner for me because they have finally eliminated the rule where offensive players can draw contact in that particular fashion. The game of basketball on the professional level is going to be much better now that that has been legislated out of the game. An honorable mention for me, Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett normally wears arm sleeves for this previous weekend's game against the Vikings. He decided to go sleeveless. Now, this dude's biceps are probably the size of my head. Like, this dude, he has thighs for arms. It is is ridiculous how big this dude is. According to Garrett's Twitter, the first time he ever goes sleeveless in a game, 
He gets drug tested. This dude is so jacked that the first time he goes sleeveless, he gets drug tested. So Miles Garrett, good for you. We're going to switch it over to some losers. Tanner, who was a loser for you from this past weekend? I tell you, this is a, a little bit before that. I think this actually occurred last week, but my loser is Devin Williams. What are you doing, buddy? You are a critical part of a Brewers bullpen that has put together the third best team ERA in Major League Baseball. You have 54 innings on the year, only 15 earned runs. That's to a 2.5 ERA. And you get drunk and punch a wall and break your hand while celebrating your division clincher. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. That's as bad as it gets. And for, for a Brewers team that handled the NL Central very easily, has World Series aspirations, your number two arm and that bullpen goes down, that is a tough, tough blow. What are you doing, Devin Williams? You are my loser. That is inexcusable. And that is a very tough hit for the Brewers bullpen. Sam, what was your loser from this past week? Unfortunately, my biggest loser was the Arkansas Razorbacks, my team. Had a tough go with number two, Georgia. Georgia beat them in damn near every aspect of the game. Arkansas only had 162 yards, a seven passing, 75 rushing. Meanwhile, on the other side, Georgia had 72 passing yards and 273 rushing yards. Not only that, Georgia had 22 first downs while Arkansas had nine. Georgia ran 67 plays to Arkansas's 45. Georgia even held on to the ball for 36 minutes of the game. Meanwhile, Arkansas only held it for 23 minutes. Not only that, but the cherry on top, Arkansas had 13 penalties for 101 yards. This game just goes on to show you how much of a separation there is with Alabama and Georgia in comparison with the rest of the SEC. We're going to talk more about Arkansas here in just a little bit, so stay tuned. I have some thoughts on that as well. My loser for this week is college game day. This upcoming week, they decided to go to Texas and Oklahoma, which, after Texas jumped back into the top 25 this past week, is a top 25 matchup. But when you have a top four matchup, the ranked third Hawkeyes are hosting the ranked four Penn State Nittany Lions. It's the first top five game at Kinnick Stadium since 1985, where the top ranked Hawkeyes took on the second overall ranked Michigan Wolverines. Now, yes, College Game Day did attend Ames earlier this year, did go to the Cyhawk game. But this is a game with major playoff implications. And sure, the same could be said about Oklahoma and Texas. If Texas beats Oklahoma, yeah, that's going to have some playoff implications as well. But this is a top four matchup. I went back to look, and I sincerely could not find the last time there was a top five matchup that college game day was not there for. I could not find it. Actually, the I, I did see this on Twitter. The last time I think was in 2003, 2004. It was early 2000s. And guess which game, guess which two teams were top five and were playing each other. Yeah, but game day didn't go. Was it Oklahoma was it? and Texas were the two teams top playing in the top five that Oklahoma, that uh, game day did not go to in the early 2000s. Well, that was the last time. Really? Uh huh. 
the plot thickens. My goodness, that's an interesting point. It's been a tough look for College Game Day, where they recently passed up the opportunity to go to Arkansas and Texas A&M and Dallas. You know, the game's not on a college campus. Why would we go there? The Red River rivalry being played in Dallas this year, not on a college campus. The environment, simply put, isn't going to be as great not being on a college campus. College Game Day, for those reasons, is a loser for this week. Look, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas both move into the SEC, ESPN's conference, basically, you know. It it does feel like a money move. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's how the business works. Very quickly, in honorable mention, Monday Night Football, a lightning delay in a dome. If you're watching Monday Night Football and you're tuning in to when the game was supposed to start, like I was, all of a sudden you see on the screen – Lightning delay. The game will start in about an hour. This game's in a dome. On Twitter, there was a clip of the referee telling John Gruden, the head coach of the Raiders, that there is a storm delay. And his immediate reaction is looking up. And he's just like, uh, roof? How do we have a storm delay? Because, because I mean, we're in a dome. This is one of the newest stadiums in the NFL. Shouldn't you be prepared for this? Shouldn't you have the utmost technology to handle any circumstance? You've paid billions of dollars for this stadium of taxpayer money. But no, they were not prepared. And we had a storm delay for a game inside a dome. Remarkable. (laughs) Absolutely remarkable. All those players and teams, organizations, Definitely losers from this past week, but I would say Urban Meyer probably was the largest loser, not even traveling back to Jacksonville with his team, but having some interesting situations play out in Columbus. That's all we'll say about that. We're going to transition and talk about some games. We're going to start with talking about teams with expectations. There's Four games here that comes to mind, talking about teams that had expectations on what this weekend would look like. Ole Miss, Alabama. We were expecting this game to potentially be at least somewhat close in the first half. Alabama opened up the first half, 28 to nothing. Arkansas, Georgia. We expected Arkansas to score, 37 nothing. Notre Dame, Cincinnati. Sure, it ended up being a two-possession game at the very end, but at halftime, I believe the score was either 17 to nothing or 14 to nothing. It was one or the other. And then Stanford and Oregon. Oregon, previously ranked third in the country, loses in overtime. Of these games, which was the most surprising to you guys? Tanner? That, That Georgia defense, man. I mean, that is a bad group of people. They are physical, they are fast, they are mean, and they simply do not let up yards. Mm-hmm. Therefore, don't let up points. I mean, Arkansas against Texas had 400, 471 yards of total offense. Ran, wow. ran for 333 against Texas. Against Texas A&M, they had 443 of total offense. This was far mm-hmm. and away the best offense Georgia had seen thus far in the season. And the talk was, oh, we talk, we see how good this Georgia defense is. How will they fare 
against a quality offense. They held them to 162 total yards, as Sam has already said. It was just dominant. It was simply dominant from that Georgia defense. So that is what sticks out to me is how good this Georgia defense is. I'm on record this past week when the spread was Georgia favored by 17 and a half, I believe it was, talking about how disrespectful it was to Arkansas. And in the first half, in the first quarter, I believe it was, Georgia had covered the spread. Sam, how fast did Arkansas jump out to a 21 to nothing deficit? I mean, like Tanner said, that defense of Georgia looks so freaking good. Honestly, as in the previous episode, I was feeling confident in my hogs, but Georgia proved it. I think I'm picking them over Bama this year. Georgia looks really freaking good. Yeah. And I de- and they didn't even have their starting quarterback. Imagine if they had their starting quarterback and threw the ball for more than 72 yards. That's what's scary. I tell you, I'm kind of with Sam here. I mean, Bama's Bama, and we've seen what they've done so far this year, and I'm sure that's a game we'll talk about real soon anyway. But something, something in the air, something in my gut tells me that this is Georgia's year. I don't know what it is. But I have this. I just got this feeling that this this is Georgia's year. Mm-hmm. There, there have been two defenses this year that have been very impressive on a national level, and one of which being the Iowa Hawkeye football team, which turned over Maryland seven times in one game. But that was against Maryland. Yeah, this was against a top ten team. Georgia is just flat out dominant. And I know we're all looking forward to that SEC championship game because that's what everyone seems has their eyes set on in the SEC. Just pray it doesn't get robbed from us. No, that is going to be must watch. Let's talk about the other half of that projected SEC championship game. That being Alabama going up against Ole Miss. The most impressive piece of this to me was how Ole Miss started the game. Not only did he have head coach Lane Kiffin saying, grab your popcorn. This is going to be a game. Grab your popcorn. This is going to be close. And then Ole Miss, this is how they opened up the game. First drive, turnover on downs, then turnover on downs, then four plays and a punt, then turnover on downs, then a fumble. And just like that, it's the end of the half. That's what Ole Miss did. Apparently that was entertaining football. That was popcorn worthy. That was a tough start for Ole Miss. I tell you, just sometimes you need to coach with your head, not your heart. I know you and Saban have your differences. I know you had your fallout. I know that you were his offensive coordinator. I know you were fired before uh, before a national championship game. And I know you want this quite possibly more than any game this season. But coach with your head, man. Coach with your head. The fourth and one that they went for on the Bama six, um, that was the first drive of the game. I didn't mm-hmm. hate going for it there. I hated the play call. I hated the play call, but I, I think it was just a just an inside draw. I would have liked to see maybe someone going outside or, or, or 
putting together some sort of option because the run wasn't there and, and the ball was given to the given to the running back. But I mean, the, the, the next few turns fourth, they got stopped on fourth and two from their own 47 fourth and one from their own 31. I mean, come on, you have to be smarter than that. You were playing Bama going for it. I know that's what they do. I know that's, that's old Mrs. MO. We're going to go for it. We're going to, we're going to try and get you in a shootout. This isn't Missouri. This isn't Louisville. This is Alabama, and you need to play sound football, and you cannot give their offense short field. You cannot turn the ball over. I I just don't know what Lane Kiffin was doing. Yeah, I I do I do feel bad for the players for Ole Miss because looking at the game, if they did have sound coaching, they did lose the first half twenty eight to nothing. But like we talked about. Like you mentioned, Tanner, Alabama did get short fields on two of those touchdowns starting at the Ole Miss 31 and then starting at midfield two different times. So that's three different short field opportunities. It was a bad luck for Ole Miss. Yeah, and to me, like I said, falls on falls on Lane Kiffin. Games, emotional games at sports are always going to happen, but you need to you need to coach and play with your head and not your heart or your gut. And I don't think Lane Kiffin did that and it showed. Yeah. I mean, I just don't understand why they went for it on fourth. They were moving the ball. Matt Corral played a game, but like we said, giving Alabama a short field is never a good idea. So yeah, you got to take the points when you can get them against a team like Bama and Lane Kiffin uh, thought, I don't know what he was thinking. I'm going to be honest, yeah. but it should have been a lot closer than the score tells, I think. I think because mm-hmm. Ole Miss was moving the ball pretty pre-handedly and then stupid coaching decisions. I think that's what this game came down to in the mm-hmm. end. No. If, if they had converted on those four fourth down conversions – this game would be very different, but the play calling in those situations, the fourth and one that Tanner talked about the inside draw, not only was it an inside draw where Alabama was lining up de- defensive tackles right in the center of the line of scrimmage to stop that, but it was a draw out of shotgun. If you had done something like a QB sneak, the Iowa classic, the Iowa special, that probably gets you a first down because it always does. It's, you know, especially when you run something from the shotgun on a fourth and short yardage situation, not only, I mean, my personal belief is why turn a fourth and one into a fourth and five, but there's something to be said. If you're lined up in the eye and the running back can get forward momentum before getting the ball, when you're in the shotgun, he takes a step to his right to get the ball and he has no forward momentum. I just do not understand shotgun formation in fourth and short unless you're getting something out to the edge in between the tackles. It does not make sense to me whatsoever. It was a lot of bad coaching decisions that killed Ole Miss. The two other games briefly, we'll talk about Notre Dame and Cincinnati. I was thoroughly impressed by how dominant Cincinnati was to a Notre Dame team that played Wisconsin and made, made Wisconsin look like they didn't even belong on the field. 
Now Wisconsin throwing three pick sixes. They'll do, they they kind of did it to himself. Did Notre Dame just sit there and let it happen? Yeah, they definitely forced some pressure. But Cincinnati to come into the situation and to make Notre Dame in the first half look like they didn't belong on the field, a team that's made two college football playoffs in recent memory, it was really impressive. Yeah, just just a big win. I, I kind of talked about it before. You really needed this game if you were uh, Cincinnati on the road against uh, top 10 Notre Dame. You needed it. You needed to boost that resume, and you did. And, and now all you can do is is win out in your conference games and, and hope hope for a little chaos for some Power 5 teams and, and pray the committee, committee likes your, your two key wins here. Another game that surprised me was Stanford and Oregon. Oregon coming into this game had pretty well dominated their Pac-12 opponents and as well as gave Ohio State more than what they could handle. So coming into this game against Stanford, I wasn't expecting much from Stanford. And sure enough, as the game was winding down, Oregon had a seven-point lead and Stanford had the ball well on the other side of the field. They had to drive 80 yards to get a touchdown to score. But Oregon committed three different penalties, targeting and two different pass interferences on that drive. The Oregon defense gave up 45 yards of the 80 just based off of penalties. That's something that cannot happen if you are a any team looking to get a win, but especially if you're a team with playoff aspirations, it's not done for Oregon. If they win out and some things fall their way, they can make it back up, but things are going to be really hard for Oregon moving forward. Yeah. I tell you, and we talk about this at length, how with two looking like two dominant teams in the sec, of course, you still got your, your other blue bloods from other conferences. It's just conference winners can't give any reason for the committee to leave them out. And that's what this was. Now, Oregon as a football team, do you press the panic button? I personally say no. Um, It's just a a classic in-conference upset. You talked about the penalties. Yes, of course, that's inexcusable. But three penalties in the last drive, probably not going to happen again. It, it's certainly not a panic-worthy moment for the team. It's just a little bit eye-opening, like you said, when the, the fight for the playoff is so competitive and you give a reason for the committee to leave you out. Yeah. This, this really is one of the best years for college football that we've seen in a long time because so many teams have an opportunity to jump up there. A first-of-five team has an opportunity to jump up there. That's not Notre Dame like we talked about earlier. This season is really good for the overall health of college football. Switching over to the NFL, we're going to talk about Tampa Bay and New England. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys uh, knew that this game was happening or not. It wasn't like there were commercial. It's not like there was a commercial after commercial Adele music being used or anything like that. But the, the amount, there are some NFL games that just hype themselves up just because of the football that's going to be played this upcoming weekend. We have a few of those games. 
with the Seahawks and the Rams on Thursday night football. We also have the Chiefs and the Bills this weekend. Those games write themselves. You don't have to market for that. But boy, did the NFL put lots of money into marketing this game. And we all thought that, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a good storyline game. We're all going to look at what Bill Belichick does with Tom Brady after the game, but the game's probably not going to be good. Sam, tell tell me a little bit about what happened to this game. I mean, the Patriots came out to play. Uh, It's a hell, uh, one of my favorite games so far this season. Honestly, I thought Tampa Bay was just getting, it wasn't even going to be close. Like you said, new quarterback in England with Mac Jones. I thought he'd struggle against this Buccaneer defense and it turned out to be a hell of a game for the NFL. Tanner. Yeah. I tell you leaving this game, all of my takeaways kind of were on the, on the Patriots side. Cause on the Tampa side, this is as emotional a game as it gets for the leader of that Tampa Bay team, of course, Tom Brady and We've been watching sports for too long. Games of this emotional magnitude are just going to be close. That is sports. It happens all the time. So Tampa Bay on the road in the rain as emotional of a game. I'm not, I don't really take away much from this. I, I, I don't think it was a certainly no reason to panic. They didn't play well, but they're fine. New England is, I think I'm not big into moral victories, but Hard kind of not to walk away from that with, with a smile on your face. We talked about Mac Jones earlier. Boy, was he impressive. He, he outplayed Tom Brady. Let's call it what it is. He outplayed Tom Brady um, a, a few inches from a field goal away from actually winning the game with a, just a far worse team in terms of talent. So it was a great game to watch, uh, great for the spectator. But good if you're a Patriots fan, you're smiling for, from what you saw. Moral victory is probably also isn't something that Bill Belichick takes into account. But if if you are a Patriots fan, yeah, this was definitely as close to a moral victory as you're ever going to get. I thought the most impressive part of this game was probably Bill Belichick Jr.'s son, uh, <laughs> son his tongue. Uh, it showed up quite frequently on the broadcast. He had some fantastic face uh, facial expressions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Go look it up. You got to look it up. Fourth and three. In the pouring rain. The field goal was from about 55 yards out. In the pouring rain, it was windy. Bill Belichick decides to trot out the kicker. Instead of potentially going for it on fourth and three, making it a little closer. There was time left to do so. What are your thoughts on the decision? You know, I personally think I would have gone for it. Um, like you said, given the conditions and the distance, it seemed like a, a fairly difficult kick. But given the conditions and the distance, like you talked about. But that being said, I don't know my kicker. I, I, I don't know what, what Nick Folk is comfortable with. I don't know how comfortable he is kicking in, in the rain. And Bill Belichick's been doing this for 20 plus years now. I I've, I find it kind of a a hard spot to criticize him and given his prowess in coaching in the NFL, but uh, it, it certainly was an eyebrow raiser, not something I would have done, but, but like I said, I, I don't, I don't know the personnel as well as, as Belichick and, and he's been doing it certainly uh, 
far longer than than I have. If, if this was a first year coach, I think uh, I would I would be in a position with a little bit more criticism. But it's Bill Belichick, so he, he's earned the right to make this decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I keep going back and forth with this one. I mean, they had negative one total rushing yards on right. the night. So I think if James White is in, not not injured, I think he does go for it because fourth and three run is easier uh, when you have a good and reputable reputable running back. So I think he would have gone. But God, in those conditions, it's hard to kick a field goal that far away. But, I mean, like you said, Bill Belichick knows his team has done it for quite some time. So, I mean, it's hard to go against the grain with him at the helm. You know, and even then we we kind of bring in how neither of us really would have have kicked it. But then again, two centimeters right and and they win the game. Like it hit off the upright. It wasn't (laughs) like like he shanked it. It wasn't like he completely shanked it. It literally hit the upright. So, yeah. I I don't know if I'd go as far as to say as they win the game because – Tom Brady does Tom Brady things and there would have been uh, 50 seconds left, which being down two, this is the same situation that the Cowboys, but the Buccaneers in week one. Now the Buccaneers didn't move the ball as much in this game as they did against the Cowboys. It was very rainy, but I wish we lived in that universe where Nick Folk makes the kick and we see Tom Brady in Foxborough to try to make a late late game miracle happen to beat his old team. I wish we were able to see that storyline play out. One last thing that is interesting is that Bill Belichick in the post-game presser was asked about whether he thought about going for it in classic Bill Belichick fast, and he went, uh, no, not really. Apparently he didn't even think about it. So it kind of surprises me that he did, didn't even think about it. Yeah. But I, I kind of think it, it kind of goes back to what, what I think Sam and I were talking about, how like he knows his team, he knows his team better than anyone. He's been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. He, he, when he has, when he knows uh, what to do, he, he, he won't stray from that. He trusts his instincts, which uh, in this case didn't work out, but um, I'm sure there are plenty of cases that, uh, I mean, there are plenty of cases where it did. So, mm-hmm. We'll go ahead and wrap up the NFL talk today with Cardinals and Rams. All of us picked the Rams in this game. And last week I had asked Tanner, not going with your MVP pick, huh? Tanner, if you had to go back, what do you have uh would you have changed your pick? Well, I mean, obviously hindsight's 2020. Um uh, and I still think the Rams are a better team than the Arizona Cardinals. And I think when it's all said and done, the Rams will have moved farther. Um, I, I just think this was your classic case of a hangover. You got a huge statement win with the against the Buccaneers, where you kind of take it to the Buccaneers. And in the locker room, you're kind of looking around like, we're good. Like, we are good. And then you feel like you're in cruise control, and that's simply not the case when you have someone as talented – as Kyler Murray on the opposing sideline and you have all that talent at wide receiver with DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Green, Rondell Moore. We all know this, but it way too early, certainly no need for panic in, in Los Angeles. 
Um, just uh, need to to kind of shake the shoulders and realize that we, this this is the hardest division in football. We're gonna we have we have six games against really good teams, so we can't we cannot take one game off. And and I think this was a kind of a wake up call that was needed to, to tell the Rams, hey, you're good, but you're, you need to play football. You need to show up. Matthew Stafford seemed to try and force the ball a lot to Cooper Cup and wasn't as didn't do as great job as in previous games of spreading the ball around. And the running game also didn't make big impacts as well, which it's hard to beat any team when you're one dimensional on offense. And especially when you're trying to put up as many points as the Cardinals do as, as they lead the league in scoring so far this season. MVP. To wrap up today's show, we're going to go on the diamond with Dislin. This is quite the time of year for baseball as we're here in October. This is the best time for baseball. And tonight we have some great baseball coming up. Tanner, let's go on the diamond. What we got going on? I tell you what, we're, we're going to start, we're, we're going to press the rewind button a little bit. We're going to go back to Sunday, which was okay. the, the end of the regular season, game 162 for, for every team across the league. And there was the potential for some chaos. Um, going, into that, going into that game, the Red Sox and the Yankees were tied atop the American League wild card with Toronto and Seattle, each one game behind. If, if the, the Red Sox and the Yankees were to have lost and Toronto and Seattle would have won, that would have been a four-way tie for the American League wildcard. In that case, they would have had to rank each team based on their head-to-head record against the other three, of which Boston held the best record, and Boston got to choose which one of the four they would play against, and then, of course, the other two would play. Absolute chaos. The two winners would then be the wildcard playing the wild card game. However, but both Boston and, and the Yankees won. So there was no game 163. There was no chaos, really. And, and now we have tonight, Boston and the Yankees uh, face off in the American League wild card game. There was the potential for a, a game 163 over in, in the National League as well. Uh, heading into game 162, the Giants led the Dodgers by one game in the, Ameri- in the National League West. Um, if, if San Francisco lost and the Dodgers won, they would both have a, a hundred and six wins. They would go to a one game one sixty three to determine a division winner. Um, but of course, as San Francisco has done all year long, they won, clinching the the National League West. So the one hundred and six win Dodgers are now a wild card team. That is absolutely insane. You mentioned the, the game tonight. Tonight, we have the American League wildcard game between the Yankees and the Red Sox in Boston. Pitching matchup is Garrett Cole versus Nate Evaldi. Red Sox made an interesting decision to go with Chris Sale for game 162. I mean, they needed to win it to lock up their postseason hopes. So so they they went with their ace, of course, which means they can't pitch in the wildcard game. And some interesting things to note. No DJ LeMayu for the Yankees. If he was course, of course, was played was placed on the 10 to 10 day IL on, on Sunday, right before their, their game against the Rays, no JD Martinez for the Red Sox. And we, we're not sure what the situation with Gio Urshela is after he made that catch in, in on Sunday and, and went into the Rays dugout. The 
The other wild card game is tomorrow night, and that is the Cardinals at the Dodgers. Interesting pitching matchup here. We've got Adam Wainwright. Yes, 40-plus-year-old 40, 40 Adam Wainwright versus Max Scherzer. Uh, hard, to, hard to not lean with the 106-win team in that game. So now moving on to, to the uh, ALDS, we'll have that first wildcard winner against the, against the Rays, the 100-win Rays. Now, no matter what, this is going to be a divisional game as, uh, as the, the wild card is, is the Yankees and the Red Sox, as I've talked about before. So these teams know each other. And interestingly enough, Tampa Bay holds the, the season series against the Yankees. They won 11-7. And the season series against the Red Sox, they won 11-8. So, so you, give, you give a slight advantage to Tampa Bay there, but didn't dominate anybody. Again, best of five. Now, quite possibly the, the best series, I think, of – of the entire uh, divisional series is the White Sox and the Astros. I tell you, they're just two really solid teams who, who kind of coasted throughout, throughout the entire season with not much, uh, not much chasing them within their division. Interestingly enough, Houston won the season series five to two. My, my key to watch here is, is that White Sox rotation. They are so deep. Starters, that three-headed monster of Lucas Giolito, Lance Lynn, and Dylan Cease. And then in, in the back end of that bullpen, Liam Hendricks and, of course, the, the big uh, trade deadline acquisitions and Craig Kimbrell and Ryan Tapera from Crosstown from the Cubs and Garrett Crochet, the fireballing lefty, come in and, and shut things down. Switching over to, to the National League, again, the wildcard winner uh, would, would go against the, the San Francisco Giants and – as I've men mentioned at length and will mention again, this could be a 107-win Giants versus the 106-win Dodgers in a best of five. That is absolutely insane. To put the cherry on top, the Dodgers and the Giants are number one and number two in, um, in Team ERA. San Francisco currently holds the, the season series over over the Dodgers 10 to nine. So pretty much as close as it gets. I mean, you win the national league West by one game on the very last day, you, you win the season series 10 to nine. This could be the best series of the postseason in the division series. But interestingly enough, San Francisco is currently two and four against the, the Cardinals this year. So if the Cardinals can somehow march into Dodger stadium and pull out a win, they won four out of six against San Francisco. So they can maybe make a little noise there. The other series in the National League, again, one of my favorites to watch, is going to be the Brewers and the Braves. Um, this is com two completely different teams because you have the Brewers, who are the third best pitching rotation in, in, the, in Major League Baseball, behind, of course, the Dodgers and Giants, who I mentioned before. They have a three-headed monster themselves in, in, in their starting rotation with Corbin Burns, my National League MVP, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta. Of course, the Brewers will be missing their setup man, uh, their best righty reliever in Devin Williams, as I talked about before, when he went and punched a wall. Switching over to the Braves, you have a lineup that straight out, straight up mashes. That infield is as good as it gets from the plate. They're, three of the four infielders have 30-plus home runs in Austin Raleigh, uh, Freddie Freeman, and Ozzie Albies, all with 30-plus. The one who... The one who doesn't have 30-plus is Dansby Swanson, who has 27. So that infield specifically can mash. The Braves score runs. 
the Brewers don't give up runs. So that is about as good as it gets from a matchup standpoint. And the season series is three to three with, again, just as close as it gets. So Atlanta, Milwaukee and White Sox, White Sox Astros are the two series that I'm most looking forward to. Welcome to the best time in sports, not only in baseball, as we're getting into the wild card matchups, the divisional round, but as a whole, when you take a look at it, obviously we have college football, the NFL, we have the postseason coming up for Major League Baseball, the NBA's opening night, two weeks from today, October 19th, college basketball starts November November 9th next month is around when college basketball starts up. But we are entering the best time of year for sports fans. Enjoy it while it lasts. Any last thoughts? Tell you what, I'm going to put on the record right now. My World Series prediction is going to be Dodgers-White Sox. Dodgers-White Sox. I got Yankees over Boston tonight. Then I'm going to have Tampa Bay over the Yankees in that series. Uh, the White Sox over Houston in that series. White Sox over Rays. White Sox win the American League over the National League. Dodgers over Cardinals. Um, Brewers over Braves. Dodgers over Dodgers over Giants. Dodgers over Brewers. Then Dodgers over White Sox for the title. Okay. Tanner, we'll see how that ages. We'll come back next week for another update on the Diamond with Dislin. That wraps it up for today. Thank you all so much for tuning into the pod. We appreciate your support. The clock has run out on this episode, but we'll see you in the next one on Crunch Time.